so uh, refuge in the Buddha, the Puto, being the knowing, being the knowing of the way it is, knowing the Dhamma. So uh, sitting in the place of enlightenment. So in the Buddhist symbolism, of course, the Bodhi tree, the Buddha, the or the ascetic Gotama sitting under the Bodhi tree. Now that's a that's a symbol of what we're doing now, sitting under the Bodhi tree, or awakening. Not trying to do anything, the they said to go to him and trying to do all kinds of things. After he you know, became an ascetic, he, you know, he spent six years of doing all kinds of activities, you know, of denial, of resistance to sensory pleasure, comfort, in the sense of doing something, having to purify, control, refine, get rid of, fight off the forces of evil and temptation. So that's asceticism. But after six years of concentrated efforts, uh, he gave up on that one. Because, you know, according to the legend, he was successful in all his endeavors, you know, so he could, wasn't like he was a failed ascetic. Uh, he just, he could be the best, you know, according to the scriptures, the best of the assassins still. Even attaining the heights, the best results of ascetic practices, it was still not liberating. So notice this, uh, the, 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 the early part of his life before being ascetic, it was like the privileged life, the comfort, social privilege, uh, all the best that the, a society could offer. And then the other extreme of, what do we say, the, the first extreme is sensory indulgence, gamma sukhalikana yoko in the Dhammajaka Sutta. And then the other extreme is Attakilamatanu Yoko, asceticism. And then the enlightenment is, we call it Majjima Bhattibhata, middle way. Now to, to most of us that sounds like a compromise. Take the middle way or <laughs> that's, that's a intellectual uh, thought, isn't it? A lot of Buddhist people think that you, you just, you know, you, you don't deny yourself all that much and you just don't overdo on the sensory pleasures. So it makes a nice middle-class excuse to to not get too extreme on either end. But that's not the Majjima Bhattibhata. So this uh, 
Bhutto Tamo, this, this uh, pointing to this, this is the paradigm, this is a refuge. Now this, this can be used quite skillfully if you, if you want to. And so this very act of this sense of sitting here, aware, awake, And you're aware of any tendencies you feel of you've got to do something or you've got to get your practice together, get rid of your kilesas, your defilements, um, attain levels of concentration, get rid of your wandering thoughts. And so meditation, you know, oftentimes it's even taught in terms of stages and attainments and and you, you go from this to that and th- and notice that's how you know that's easy for us to understand many people like that style of teaching because it fits in with our cultural conditioning that's how you know i was conditioned you know you you don't start out with a phd you have to go you know to started out with kindergarten first and then worked my way up never attained phd <laughs> i mean that's the worldly that's the worldly uh you know uh attitude uh conditioned phenomena is like that it works in the world you know that kind of attitude but in terms of liberation it doesn't work because this sense of I've got to get something, you know, I'm here now to do something in order to attain some, the next stage. You know, you observe that. That is filled with Sakya Ditti, self-view, personality view. You know, right now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm at this stage uh, and and during this winter's retreat, I'm going to really strive and to attain the next stage. That's uh, what is that? And that's a sense of self, isn't it? We define ourselves. I'm at this stage, and and then the but it's not good enough. This stage isn't good enough. It's not liberating being at the stage I'm in. So I want to you know, really practice hard so I can attain the next stage, which is, sounds better than, than the stage I'm in right now. So this is, just pointing out, this is Sakya Ditti, of fetters. I keep emphasizing these ten fetters. The first three fetters are, you know, are the real hindrances, the real obstructions to path knowledge. You can't see the path. You can't See, Majjhima Bhati Bhatta, you can't recognize it. If these three fetters are never understood, if you're spending your monastic life operating with just reinforcing Sakya Ditti, Sila Bhatta Bharamasa Wichikicha, you've wasted you, the opportunity. So it's uh, rather than trying to encourage any more Sakya Ditti by telling you that you, you know, you've you've got to 
do something and attain something. Because if I do that, you know, being a, a teacher and having authority, you know, you you easily believe it. You'll easily believe I know where you're at and what, you know, and that you should uh, do a practice according to what I tell you. This is how we're conditioned. You take dependency on me in the beginning, and the whole, all these these things can reinforce this sense of uh, I'm. You know, I need I need to be told what to do. I need the teacher. He knows he knows what I need. That's so easy to believe. So, rather than trying to to uh, confirm that delusion, I'm pointing to, or trying to anyway, point to uh, the conditions, the attachment to conditions that we 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 may not be aware that we're doing what we're doing. Because cultural conditioning, social conditioning is so is uh, so strong and uh, oftentimes unquestioned. You know, we believe it, and and uh, just seems to be, you know, common sense to most of us. The what they call a samutta satya or conventional reality seems like common sense and just being practical. And let's face the facts, kind of attitudes. Now, what I'm doing right now is not to say it's wrong or that you shouldn't think like that. Because then I'm saying if you think like that, you shouldn't. And that's that's still telling you there's something wrong with you. But so what I'm trying to do now is just encourage you to observe, to learn to recognize this natural position of Bhutto, knowing that even if you're feeling, if like now, whatever you're feeling, uh, at this moment, you know, whether you feel confused by what I'm saying, you agree, you disagree, or you like what I'm saying, or it's interesting, or you find it, um, conf- you know, something you don't like, whatever your feeling about it is, it's like this. So it's like encouraging you to just observe rather than than to believe. You know, I'm not asking you to believe what I'm saying, but it's a kind of like a a prod or say, wake up. You know, pay attention, but not from the sense of sakyaditi of trying to figure out whether I'm right or wrong, or you're right or wrong, or which way is the right way. Is it the Theravada way? Is it the Ajahn Sumato style, or is it the more the Mahasi Sayado style, or whatever you know? And then we get caught in doubt. Vichikicha, the third fetter. So then we're we're caught in it. Which one is the right way? Is it like Ajahn Sumato style, or Brahma Wangso style? Or is it, you know, I'd incline to maybe Advaita style? 
or maybe, uh, but that's not, if you're Theravadan, you shouldn't do that. You don't want, don't want any of that Hindu stuff. Pure, pure Theravada is all, is, you know, all I want. Whatever you're feeling, you know, whatever you're threatened by, or the Tibetan style. Cultivate bodhicitta. Or, you know, it goes on and on thinking about which, which do you want to be, an arahant or a bodhisattva? It's all sakyaditi, isn't it? Which, which you're going to choose? Now this is, it's recognizing that this is thinking, isn't it? Uh, we're presented with so much information now, uh, you know, spiritual paths uh, from every angle, from every religion, from all kind of New Age styles. So that information we acquire, and then, you know, if we're still, if we still haven't penetrated or seen what Sakyaditi is, then we then we just get confused by it or doubtful. Because each one kind of says that this is the straight path, this is the right way. <laughs> so to make it simple, Sakyaditi is, you know, the self in terms of a uh, way in Theravada Buddhism we use the word self. It is uh, what we might call the ego. It's the created, the things you create, you believe about yourself. It's as simple as I am, uh, it's identification with the body, I am a, a man. Now that seems like a, a fact. You know, in the conventional world, you know, conventional reality. The body's male. So, I am a man is the logic that comes from that. Now, in, in uh, reflective awareness, intuitive awareness, you're observing that, you know, the body is, in, you know, in terms of our society, we call this, this kind of body a, a male body. It is what it is. I'm not saying it's it's better or worse than a female body or what it's just it is what it is. It's like this. And then I claim I am a man, then I'm adding something more, isn't it? I it's uh, I'm creating an attachment, an identity with the body. So it's kind of basic because we we learn that from Childhood, early childhood. First, you don't even notice the difference between boys and girls, and then it becomes apparent later on. And and the identity um, that one forms around the gender of the body. Now, this is to be investigated. You know, this uh, seems like like a fact, just common sense in the worldly way of thinking. Now we're not saying it's wrong, but it is. But it, it, we're not. We're exploring it in a different way, not in terms of dualism 
or male-female, but of identity, attachment, of creating, what we create around the body. What I create around my body. I am 73 years old. And many of you are wondering, he had his 72nd birthday. <laughs> But this is my 73rd year, you see. Completed 72. So I think if I'm in my 73rd year, why not say I'm 73? Now this is conventional reality. This is not absolute. It's my personal preference. It's not saying that anyone who refuses to be 73 until the July 27th somehow is vain and refuses to admit their real age, even though one might think that sometimes. <laughs> that's what Western people do, isn't it? You never, you, you never, at least when you, you know, after you get over 21, you know, you're, you try to stay the younger age as long as possible. Suddenly your birthday is here and suddenly everybody's saying, happy birthday. And how old are you? And you say, oh, um, and it's not polite to ask in this country. But this thing of, you know, everything, ev all that you think you are, you know, uh, and then we have memories. Uh, the human human condition, uh, we have this gift of, of retentive memory. And so we, I can remember incidences as far back as about three, three years old or four years old of certain memories that, that, that I, can, I can recall if I want. Now that is... Uh, you know, that can be used skillfully or it can be just a, a kind of affliction for us. Because if we remember all the bad things, isn't it, the, the abuse, the unfairness, the, the traumas of the past, then we, we're just depressed. Or I can remember the good things too. My early memories are, you know, quite happy ones, not unpleasant ones. The unpleasant memories are started when I started going to school. <laughs> school was traumatic for me, but um, before that, I don't, I don't really have any. Uh, but I have a quite pleasant one. So this is just, just reflecting in memory. What is it? They arise and cease in the present, here and now. Relationship to memory, then, is Bhutto, knowing them as Dhamma, rather than me sitting here trying to remember my past. Now, if, uh, if I go back into the conventional reality, conventional reality is I'm, you know, Ajahn Sumato, and in the past, on my birthday we passed out this 
this photograph of me when I was uh, 19 years old in the Navy. And then the, uh, by it was the uh, photo of me when I received an uh, uh, honorary title. So there's, uh, these are memories, aren't they? Ni when I was 19 years old in the Navy, you're still a teenager. And then this 70-ish old Tanjau Kun, fat Tanjau Kun. Now, identifying with that, you know, you say, I see my reactions to both those pictures. You know, so the personality can still, you know, still has its likes and dislikes and preferences and so forth. But the difference now is in awareness. You know, we're having investigated uh, memory. Meaning, not not analyzing my memories and 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 making value judgments about any of them, but recognizing memory is like this. Memory doesn't have any, you know, it's very fleeting. It's like soap bubbles. It's uh, it it kind of comes and it, you know, it has you can't can't get hold of it in in any way. You know, there's nothing you can manifest. But memories do trigger off emotions. So we have a bad memory and we feel emotionally, we, we react to that memory. When it reaches consciousness, then we, we can feel that was, uh, they should never have done that to me, that was wrong. I could get quite angry, uh, indignant by remembering uh, Things, uh, unpleasant things that that I remember from my past, or I can remember the good old days when I was young and and uh, adventurous. Now, what I do with with men memory in the in the five kanda sequence, the sanya. So, I an, an in Thai language, I often use sanya for memory. So, they, and then panya is wisdom. So, they used to say, "Are, do, are you doing this from sanya or from panya?" So, uh, personal reactions, you know whether I like or dislike, feel elated or depressed or angry or whatever, is sanya, is from sanya. Panya, wisdom, is knowing the nature of sanya. Sanya kanda is impermanent, not self. 
So no matter how much your sanya might proclaim itself to be you, it's not. Now many, many of us in monasticism have have had enormous kind of battles with uh, what we call the superego in Freudian terminology. So this is the kind of rational element, the judgmental element. You know, that we, uh, it's the superego or this sense of, you know, the conscience, the sense of right and wrong is kind of fixed. And, uh, you know, it's always, it's always saying you shouldn't have, you shouldn't think like that. You shouldn't have emotions. You shouldn't be jealous or frightened. You should be brave. You're a bad person because you still get angry. You're, you still have bad thoughts. You still have anger. And that's bad. To be angry is bad. You're insensitive, and that's bad, because being sensitive is good. And so this is uh, what they call the um, jackal, I think, in, in, uh, what is it, in NBC. It's this kind of nagging superego. It's always right. It always knows what, you know, where to point out where you've gone wrong. Now, I've had plenty of this, because that's how I was brought up. Very strong, absolute, absolute fixations around right and wrong, good and evil. And many of us uh, brought up in Christian or Jewish families, you know, where religion is, is very, uh, you know, instilled in you from an early age. We have tremendous problems of this very judgment, we're judging ourselves. Now this is sanya too. This is, this comes from sanya. Right and wrong are sanya, good and evil. All of that whole, that whole thing, all what we call dualism is a creation. You know, it's, it's arises and ceases it comes and goes. There's no absolute good or absolute evil. And yet we can live our lives with that assumption, never questioning. Never questioning that good and evil. And so in, in investigation, you're really uh, looking into this. You know, what? Not, not saying, asking you to believe. You know, Ajahn Sumedho says there is no absolute good and evil. And then quote me, for heaven's sake, don't do that. They'll invite me to a conference and put me on the on the television to to debate with somebody with a born again Christian. <laughs> which I <laughs> which I'd never do. But just reflecting on, they say, good and bad, and these are relative, aren't they? Conditions for goodness. Now, this is the, in terms of Dhamma reflection, uh, you know, the way it is, this 
all conditions are impermanent. When you're contemplating anicca, noticing that that uh, you know things are not permanently good or bad. Things that arise, they, and we we would say they're good. We get we project that word that concept because we like it or it's beautiful or it's it's kind and generous and loving and so forth and then we we call that good and then uh, then it can change to being angry and mean-hearted and selfish and ugly and brutal nasty that's bad now reflecting on Conditioned phenomena is just noticing, observing. When we want things to be permanently good, you know, then and think that that we should be permanently good, or that yourself you should be all just good all the time. Have good thoughts, kind thoughts, good emotions all the time, then every time that you you don't have good emotions or good thoughts, then you feel guilty. Because guilt is a is a is a is a kind of obsession in the in uh, the Western world. We feel guilty about having bad thoughts, about being selfish, about anger, jealousy, fear sexual desire, we feel guilty about greed, guilty about being alive sometimes. You know, we just so, we can, I know people who are just so guilt-ridden, they feel guilty because they're breathing, because they eat food, because they happen to be here. I know some people who act like, excuse me for being here. I'm terribly sorry just to present myself in front of your vision. <laughs> One woman is always saying sorry for everything. I don't, you know, as soon as she sees me, she says sorry. And I, what are you sorry about? <laughs> I mean, there's a, you know, so questioning this, you know, this sense of why do I have to be sorry for everything? Now this is sanya again, you know, seeing that sape sankharanicha, sanya is is anicca. Now this is is not we're not projecting the concept of anicca on this. It's not a it's not a suppression or a dismissal of memory or sanya kanda. We're not trying to just you know say it was just impermanent, not self, and dismiss it because that's suppression. You're just playing tricks with your mind. We have to live with this sanya. The sanya comes. You know, it's just n- it's part of the, our karma. It's the way it is. Good memories, bad memories, good emotions, loving, kind, uh, bad emotions, angry, uh, jealous, hatred, full of hatred. These things, these conditions change. 
But our relationship to them then is is uh, one of knowing, of observing. The puto knowing the dhammo, knowing the dhamma. Buddha knowing the dhamma. Now, noticing what guilt is, uh, you know, it don't try to analyze. You know, endlessly trying to figure out why you're guilt-ridden. And, and he said, there's always an attitude that you shouldn't be. That if you were a healthy, normal person, you wouldn't feel guilty. Yeah. Or if you were good enough, maybe you feel there's some permanent lack in you, some screw missing, something... You know, maybe there's a fear, maybe going crazy. Maybe you'll you'll have a nervous breakdown. You could let you could lose control of everything. This possibility. So we hang on to even you know to the most painful conditions. So in the, you know in meditation now we're examining. We're not saying should or shouldn't anymore, but observing. You know. When guilt arises, I feel guilty. Then it's like this. Now this is what I'm doing now. Is like if right now I don't feel guilty about anything, so I have to pretend I am. <laughs> but this is more or less an, an example. <laughs> so, so if uh, you know, if I'm feeling, you know, suddenly this feeling of guilt arises. I could start thinking, oh, uh, you know, guilt is in each other. And just kind of dismiss it. That's one way. Or trying to figure out, why do I feel guilty? You know, what is it in me that makes me feel guilty? And then, start, then you're starting from the self-view again. I'm somebody, my problem is that I have these guilty feelings. And I don't want them. I don't want to spend my life feeling guilty. Now that's the that's self-view, or from the puto position, recognizing this feeling, this uh, this this sense of guilt of of being wrong or having done something or said something you shouldn't have is like this. Now when I do this, then I'm aware, uh, oftentimes, of the bringing it. I'm not thinking about it anymore. I'm not trying to analyze or or evaluate it in any way, but just use the situation of this sense of being guilty like this. And then I'm I'm kind of staying with the feeling, with the kind of an emotional feeling. You can even maybe sometimes detect it in your body, in your abdomen, in your solar plexus, this sense of what we call guilt, you know, this, I did, I said something I shouldn't have, is like this. Doubt or feeling, you know, doubt or feeling uh, I'm bad or wrong or shouldn't have, this kind of very uh, kind of imperative you shouldn't have said that. The nemesis or the 
superego or the jackal, the nagging, always right, always righteous jackal. And then we do it to each other. You know, you get into your righteous mode and you shouldn't have, you, you, you did that and you shouldn't have and you, you should be punished. You should crawl on your knees and ask for forgiveness. Or you want to punish somebody for doing something bad. Now this is, it's hard to talk about this because the, you know, the, to be aware of the feeling of something. Because uh, like a thought moves very quickly. You, you know, thinking moves very rapidly. But, but then emotion lingers. It, has a, it's, it is a slower movement. So that's why, you know, one can get, somebody just says something uh, that makes, makes, makes you angry. It just may be just a spark, just a trigger, and you, and you kind of blow up in anger. And then you know, then the the thought itself, you know, then you start thinking, and uh, but if you stop thinking, you still feel the anger, the the feeling, the heat, the kind of lingering emotional feeling of anger hangs around for a while. But and this is where. Uh, it's uh, awareness. Recognizing it's like this. This energetic feeling, this heat, or whatever, you know, way you experience it is like this. And if you, now this takes patience, just to accept it, just the sense of receiving, allowing it to be. Willing to to let it be what it is, rather than trying to get rid of it or or justify it. Now this, if you you know, if you trust this, then you know it does. You begin to notice. That this this uh, energetic feeling that we might recognize uh, from be, uh, from anger, if we if we ac- totally accept it and let it be, it it's ch- it's changing, its intensity. It sa- starts losing itself, starts fading away. And if I start thinking about it, then I can keep keep kind of reviving it. And energetically, I can keep sustaining it for for days if I want. You know, just by thinking about it, or I can feel guilty about it. Here, I'm a monk, forty years, still get angry. Shouldn't a good monk should never get angry, especially one, you know, has been in the monastic system forty years. That's the superego again, isn't it? You are a Senior monk, a Mahatera, and you still get angry. 
And that's that's uh, that's what I call a nagging jackal or the superego. You shouldn't. That's bad. It's all of that that kind of that kind of thought arises. Now letting go of that kind of thinking is but to to but not to suppress not trying to suppress anything, but but go but recognize here in the present the Pachubana Dhamma here and now. It's like this. Stop think, m- thinking. I've already thought the thought that's made me angry. And then this this uh, resultant feeling, emotional feeling, is like this. And then you you know then if you patient with it and and. Don't do anything. Just stay with it. What you call embracing it or allowing it, receiving it. Then it it has nothing to it. It's a, it's energy, but it's moving, and it and it doesn't. You know, if you don't feed it, if you don't keep pouring petrol onto it and making it hotter, you just allow it to be. It'll burn out. It'll cease. And this awareness then is aware, uh, you know, what, there's awareness of its presence and of its cessation. When there isn't any anger. Non-anger is like this. Now, when we try to understand ourselves uh, on the analytical <laughs> level, you know, then it's, you know, why do I get angry? Uh, why do I feel threatened? Why do I feel guilty? <coughs> We're still operating in terms of the Sakya Ditti, because, you know, I'm somebody that has these problems, and we assume that these are my problems, and that it'd be best if I didn't have those problems. That I'd be a normal, healthy person if I didn't have those problems is the assumption. If I could be the ideal monk, the ideal Mahatera, uh, and just, you know, everything just be, uh, you know, just be full of love and compassion all the time, And many of you want me to be that way, don't you? If you, you, you know, you think Ajahn Sumato will never let me down. He'll always be. Would you like me to be the, the kind of loving father figure, understanding, compassionate, that you can trust? And my my ego says I'd like to be like that too. But that's not the point, is That's ideal, you know. That's a, an ideal, you know. Wanting something, wanting things to be perfect, everything to be right, so you can feel safe. This is, this is still Sakyaditi operating. Ajahn Sumato will never let me down. And then somebody says, "Well, you know." 
I had an incident with the old man. He certainly let me down, and then doubt arises. And then you can say, oh, you probably deserved it. <laughs> he was just being skillful. <laughs> well, I can always justify, you know, uh, angry anger and hitting you by saying I'm a Zen master. For your own good. <laughs> My father, he, he, when he'd spank me, I remember as a child, he'd say, this hurts me more than you. And Now we're not, you know, we're, we're ideals, you know, are beautiful. That's why we attach to them. It's how things should be. So we're back into the should phases of how things should be. Amravati should be, you know, we've got ideas of what we'd like Amravati to be, a Buddhist monastery, and according to an ideal of what it should be. And then when it doesn't live up to that, you know, you see thing, it, it, say, it, things happen that shouldn't happen, then we become critical, disillusioned. Now, in awareness, we're, we're not, you know, we bec we're using the situation for awa with awareness to develop wisdom rather than wasting our lives, always trying to find uh, some place or somebody that will live up to your ideals. Because you'll never do that. That'll never happen. You'll just end up being cynical and embittered. Because the world is not an ideal world. Its nature is dukkha, is unsatisfactoriness, is change. You can't sustain the best as a permanent state. That's just not the way it is. It's not Dhamma. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a desire wanting everything to be perfect. Because we can create images of perfection with our intellects. Yeah, I mean, the, the perfect government, the perfect mother, perfect father, perfect monk, perfect monastery. I can create superlative images beautiful, wonderful, lovely, like paintings, like tankas, like, you know, icons, things that are Buddha images of just perfection, of how things should be. But notice now, we're not, we're, this isn't cynical, but the, the awakened state, the Bhutto state, is aware of the way it is, not trying to make it into to an ideal, not trying to force conditioned phenomena to become something it can never be. 
So that's why in the Vipassana meditation, this, this investigation, Yoniso Manasikara, getting to the root, you know, getting right to the very source, to, to see for yourself the way it is. So ideals are not to be despised, but put them in their proper place. They are sanya. They're impermanent. You can't sustain an ideal. You know, it's just not... You can create them, but whatever you create disappears, is destroyed, dies. That's the, the law of karma. Whatever is born dies. Whatever begins ends. So, ideals are, you know, like I, I refer them to like images like guiding stars. They give direction. You know, you, you, when you're on a journey, you need direction. You need which way to go. But you can't travel very far if you're always looking up at the stars. You'll fall off the cliff. So you you know just you need to know where you are in terms of practical uh, terrain, the situation on the on the ground. So living in a world of ideals is you're always falling off cliffs or falling into ditches, getting stuck in bogs. And then idealists are always, you know, they're set up for disappointment for despair. So, and then uh, coming to terms with the way it is, is that the body, isn't that? We're using these bodies, they're not ideal bodies. I can imagine an ideal body, you know, the kind of male body that I'd like to have. But the one that that I'm feeling right now is like this. <laughs> it's the way it is. So it's it's bringing attention, not sh- hating the body because it's not living up to the high ideal body that you would like. But it is good enough, you know. To it's what I have, what's present, what I'm experiencing now. Sitting is like this. Sitting, standing, walking, lying down, four postures, breathing. So our relationship to the five khandhas is no longer identifying, judging, comparing, but reflecting. Breaking down all the assumptions, all the prejudices, all the conditioning that we've received, not not de- not destroying it, or but recognizing its true nature. All conditions are impermanent. So, in this this concept of sakya ditti, you know, 
the personality view. It's very, just, you know, create yourself, you know, make, think, you know, deliberately, intentionally, create yourself as a personality. But listen to it, not, not to, to think about it, but just using thought to create the sense of me, me and mine. But listening, your relationship to it is observing, not believing. So you begin to to see what how you do create this this fetter endlessly. It's a habit. It's a you know it's a habit pattern. It's what we create <coughs> when there is no self. Uh, emptiness. There's awareness. There's clarity. When there's a self, there's no clarity. You're just going to get confused. You know, life is confusing on a per, you know for people, for personalities. But uh, in terms of clarity, then you know, say, well, if I don't have a personality but no self, there wouldn't be anything left. And that's logic, isn't it? That's the kind of of uh, assumptions we make that that I am this personality, and if I don't have any, then I'm, n- I'm nothing, and just is annihilated. That's the thinking, that's the logic from thinking, but that's not the way it is. You know, improving this to, through awareness, when you, when you let go of everything, all your attachments to the five khandhas, the self-view, Liberation. To be, to be nobody, not to be anything at all, with no attachments, is liberation. To be somebody, then I have to keep recreating the conditions. You know, if I have to be, you know, as you're getting old now, and to be Ajahn Sumedho is a kind of you know, some some men my age are still trying to to prove themselves. They go out and find, you know, have affairs with twenty-year-old girls and wear tight trousers and do all kinds of foolish things because they're identity, trying to prove they still they still got it, can still cut the mustard at seventy-three. And that's pathetic, isn't it? It's pathetic, you know, because that is, you know, that's all they, you know, that's that's all they've learned from life. They've, you know, it's a pathetic life they've lived. Human life wasted. So at at um, you know this when there's no self, the problem dissolves. I don't have to sustain illusions about myself still being young and sexy and and vigorous, virile. 
still worth, still an object of desire. Women's hearts go all a flutter as soon as I enter the room. So emptiness then is, is not annihilation, it's a liberation. Because whatever you think you are and you have to defend and, and prove and justify, that's, that's suffering. You suffer all the time when you think you've got to prove yourself, defend yourself, justify your existence. Or just feel endlessly guilty because you're not perfect. 